What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Pavalli, coming at you with another legendary Hardware Knox podcast. Before we get started, let's continue to build a community. And please, that means subscribing to wherever you're consuming us. If this is your first time checking us out on YouTube, hit that sub button, that like button, comment, help the algorithm love us back. We're in the throes of the season and our YouTube growth has slowed. That is inexplicable, but I guess there's more content out there, so I kind of understand it. Also, if you're listening to us for the first time on a podcast player because someone recommended uh, us to you or you just stumbled upon us, Spotify, Apple, whatever, hit that subscribe button, download every episode. Uh, written reviews and, and of course, the ratings that go with them are are really helpful as well on, on Apple and, and even Spotify. I don't think they let you write reviews, though, so please do that. If you have done all those things, and that includes subscribing to us on both mediums, podcast and YouTube form, uh, consider recommending us. Shout us out on Twitter. I appreciate every time someone does do that. Retweet our promos at the very least that are coming from Hardwood Knox and NBA Math, of course, and then my my own account. Uh, or again, word of mouth goes a long way. If you could tell people who are looking for a basketball podcast with only semi-shitty takes, um, throw them our way, and hopefully you will stay. This is a very seriously unserious podcast um, that does try and cover the league as thoroughly as possible. Let's get started. We're going to begin with just the onslaught of news that is not related to basketball, but I think still needs to be covered. Um, I don't think the the whole, you know, I'm only going to talk about actual basketball. I'm only into actual basketball is the flex that a lot of people believe that it is. If you don't want to cover it, I don't necessarily think that silence implies anything i still think it needs to be covered because it's related to the nba i I would cover the brett Favre stuff for instance as an example that's thrown out there or the kanye stuff as well if that was what i covered and what i was doing full-time it's not so i feel like i don't need to comment on it even though i think you know brett Favre, like yeah he he clearly sucks like (laughs) that dude clearly is a terrible human being um we'll start with the Kyrie situation which really snowballed and like mutated into somehow something worse um over the course of thursday he speak adam silver comes out with a statement where he actually mentions kyrie irving by name and the actual action which was really the first time that any one affiliated with the league specifically came out and did something about that uh people started becoming disappointed that we haven't seen players speak out about this i think that's fair um does it fall into the category of what aboutism the the biggest sign of something that we've seen a player do or show is Robin Lopez retweeting uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's substack, and that was just predictably fantastic. Abdul-Jabbar essentially wrote, I think the quote was just like, he's insulated by money and fame and the yes people that come with both, and I would fully agree with that. So I would recommend checking, checking it out. Uh, people were also angry that Devin Booker said he hadn't been following the situation. Again, I can't bring myself to be outraged at necessarily i can bring myself to be out outraged by the lack of response um players are comfortable talking about other issues of course other movements of course the robert sarver situation there's the element of why is this any different is it because he's part of the nba players association is it because he's a star you know if this was for instance royce o'neill that had done it in brooklyn would we see the same handling here the absence of response from the players. I also don't think the onus is on them for everything. And if they're going to be asked about it, you know, Devin Booker being honest and saying, I haven't followed it. That's, you know, that's something to appreciate. And when we're going to pick apart everything players say, which I do think to some extent is fair. uh, You know, what Kevin Durant said 
when he was asked about it uh, in that post-game interview of, no, it doesn't impact us at all. That's just you guys that care. Yeah, that, that was fucking bad. So if players are going to no comment it when they're asked about it or not say anything, I'm not going to take that as them being complicit or ascribe any meaning to their beliefs when they haven't said anything. Those players deserve the benefit of the doubt to me. So that's where I land on that issue, even though I understand it really would be nice to see current players, especially those LeBron James, uh, to just name one, Steph Curry. um, It would be nice to see them come out and say something. That being said, like Steve Kerr tried to dance around it when he was asked about it on Thursday. He eventually did, you know, get into a little bit of specifics with it, but this is very, it's something clearly that a lot of people in the league don't want to touch publicly which I really just don't understand. It shouldn't be that hard to denounce anything as reprehensible as anti-Semitism, but you know, any form of racism, um, prejudice against the LGBTQIA plus community, like this, this shit isn't hard to me. Um, you can, I do think people, if you stammer through your words and I've done it a bunch and there are a bunch of people who listen to this podcast, I seem to get the benefit of the doubt that you at least know I'm not trying to just create content, um, that I'm not doing this for, for listens or to come off as pious and almighty and on my soapbox. There are some people who think they've said that to me on Twitter. They've DM me about it. Uh, I'm not going to let that fucking bother me. If those people are, are going to really bend over backwards um, to defend Kyrie Irving or, you know, well, you know, what about Amazon? Like the, what about Amazonism of this? Uh, I, you know, that is what it is. I'm not trying to displace the, the blame or to act holier than thou or to be an arbiter of morality. I think that my point here is, is that people, even if they're uncomfortable, can be more outspoken about it if they've filed this, if they have opinions on it, and they will get the benefit of the doubt unless they're saying something just so inflammatory or actually prejudiced. So again, that kind of falls under the umbrella of, I I wish players would have commented on it, or more coaches as, as well, of course, um, but I, I can't, insinuate anything from that absence or at least don't want to. I think that's also just part of the doom scrolling experience uh, is you have to sort of make concessions elsewhere to keep your sanity. Maybe that's one that I'm making who knows, but I do agree that it would have been nice to see players or coaches just be a little bit or to be actually open about it. Or in the case of Kerr, like right off the bat, be more forceful in them rebuking it. Now, that being said, um, Kyrie gave, did have a press conference. If you could call it that with reporters where he, didn't answer anything. It was another dose of, of word salad. Um, it was not, it was, it was another non apology and it, it was bad. And it caused the nets to suspend him for at least five games while he undergoes objective remedial training. Um, the language in that press release, I'm not going to read it because it was long. I would encourage you to go and ap- absolutely read it because it was pretty much just like our expectations were low for you, but Holy fuck. It was the actual, you know, embodiment of that that meme and it was good to see the organization finally take a stance now does it i don't know if five games is enough for Kyrie to atone or learn i like is that arbitrary is that just something to do with the cba and the players union i really don't know um but i think that that was the right call it was the delayed call it does seem like they gave him every opportunity to definitively walk um the promotion because that's what it was of the documentary back and he didn't and they were just like okay we're, we're done here now that being said i'm not gonna you know pat the nets on the back for that like like i already mentioned it was overdue and like now they're gonna turn around and hire ime udoka who you know 
the report just comes out like Woj reiterated or retweeted out the link when it was talked about how close the Nets are to hiring him or he's considered the front runner that he was deemed to have sent, you know, used inappropriate language talking to a female subordinate. And this goes beyond, you know, the people in my DMs and my mentions saying like, well, what about men who aren't safe in the workplace? Because they could have, um, you know, an extramarital affair. And that's what Ime Odoka is being punished for. I, that's not what Ime Odoka is being punished for per what we know of the reports. The one-year suspension was harsh enough that I think, and unprecedented enough, that you have to at least believe there's something more there. We don't know all the details, and there are people who are know things that probably aren't saying it, or that aren't saying it publicly. I know that for a fact. I'm not one of those people. I don't know any more than the average fan following this. That being said, I know enough to not just shrug it off and be like, all right, like, you know, this is like why this is unfair to him. He should get his redemptive arc. Like, it's, you know, a couple months is enough time. He's clearly atoned. Like, in the report, it says that the language was troubling enough for the Celtics to make this decision in their independent findings. Nets Daily also reported, I believe, citing only one source that um, there was an in, in, there were incidents with multiple women, not multiple affairs, but multiple women. I don't know the veracity of the veracity of that, um, but that would be something to maybe consider in the backdrop. My point is, I don't think Ime Odoka has been unfairly punished here. And yes, we don't know all the details, but this is still a bad look by the Nets if that's the direction it goes. And I think it's important to contextualize. It took them too long to act with Kyrie. And how much are they really thinking about this if they're looking this deeply into Ime Odoka? And if there are findings that completely exonerate him and that this was blown out of proportion, then let's hear them. Like if you're go if you do make this higher under these circumstances, you absolutely need to answer for it. You 100% absolutely positively need to answer for it. And that's not going a bridge too far. Now, finally, Kyrie Irving comes out with an Instagram post in which he actually says that I'm sorry. Those words were put in the caption. Uh, you look at what was written. It is written in a, a genuine tone. Um, my whole thing here is, though, like him Googling how to apologize. That's great. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's phrased genuinely, and it's somewhat clarifying, but an apology was always too little, and it's definitely too late. And it was never the point. A willingness to discuss and learn is more important. I sincerely hope that's what's next. But he burned through benefit of the doubt long ago. And that's, you know, he doesn't mention the New World Order conspiracy in his post. I'm not asking him or expecting him to answer all these questions in his Instagram post. But he does says, but he does say, um, he apologized essentially for posting the doc without, quote, context or factual explanation to what he actually agreed about but then doesn't go on to clarify or factually explain what that means. And the fact that I called this post just now somewhat clarifying speaks to how low the bar is then on this. And that's the other thing is there are people demanding an apology probably because they wanted to believe Kyrie or just to be able to move on. He couldn't even do that. The bar for sports stars, we'll call them stars because I really don't, you know, this is another conversation to have about the inequitable reaction um, or discipline towards players of status like would Royce O'Neal have been given this long to retract his statements like before the Nets went this route I'm just I'm not I don't mean to single out Royce it could be Joe Harris is any non-star where they've been given this much leeway but also even so for sports teams franchise entities just brands in general think about people celebrating what the NBA did which a lot of it was just performative even if the message was meant to be genuine when they were in the bubble having the the different sayings on the back of jerseys um, and again, acknowledging the trauma that was going on in the country with the Black Lives Matter movement, but people viewing that as progress or 
like like super productive. And I'm not saying the NBA hasn't done productive things behind the scenes and that they haven't empowered players, but like the fact that that is viewed as just this, you know, incredible gesture by a lot of people. Um, and I know it's been trolled on Twitter. It speaks to just the bare minimum of what's expected in these situations from, I'm not, this is not just the NBA, but it's sports league stars in general, brands in general. And in this situation, so many of the, not just Kyrie, but let's call it like the larger brands and entities missed the mark. It's like, if this wasn't so sad, it would be hysterical that they can't even meet the baseline of moral human decency. And we're going to get to more of that in, in just a second with some other news items that we're going to cover. So I Kyrie Irving's apology. I, I don't, I don't buy it. And he still hasn't clarified enough for me. I don't think he's deserves the benefit of the doubt either. I do hope that some good can come from this, but when you look at the breakdowns of that film and what was in it and the fact that he just can't come out and like now his most forceful gesture or his most clarifying gesture is I'm sorry to all my, um, you know, Jewish brothers and, and sisters. Okay. Had he said that right off the bat, this thing probably blows over a little bit more quickly. If that Instagram caption was said right out of the gate, but this is still someone who has, other problematic political leanings or not even put like ideological leanings just ha- that has showed in the past that just the Alex Jones video at the new world order um, thing in his defense of that was like, yeah, I'm not with him on, on the Sandy hook conspiracy, but he made some good points on this other conspiracy. And so I, I don't know what to make of it from here. And I think um, that it's probably been covered enough in this podcast. If new things pop up, we'll certainly talk about it. Let's just see what becomes of this apology, whether it's, you know, the fact that the Anti-Defamation League then rejected his half a million dollar donation to uh, whatever was unspecified. Uh, that says a lot to me, too. Like, they were clearly thinking that he was going to walk back or show more remorse than he did. Um, I don't think he's shown enough of it because, in part, you can't atone this quickly when you've shown that you actually do believe in this this bullshit. And... um Again, I don't think that the punishment right now is necessarily aligns with what's happening, but I do hope some good from this. Is he going to be more open to educating himself on views that don't currently align with his conspiracy theories since he just seems like someone who wants to um, speak rather than listen and doesn't want to have these genuine debates with people? He could talk about being dehumanized all he wants, but like he won't give real answers to, to questions and he won't back up, you know, his views with factual explanations or, or context. And even when he admits it, he still won't do that. And so maybe that's to come. I absolutely do think he needs to answer for this stuff more specifically because it's out there. Deleting the tweets, not enough. Yeah. Go ahead. Hammer Amazon for offering, um, offering that movie for selling uh, that, that documentary to absolutely have no one here is trying to protect fucking Amazon. It's easier to go after a singular person because they're not like this huge brand without a face essentially you know there's jeff bezos okay then go after him like Kyrie gave this documentary more more run and publicity than amazon ever has to the best of my knowledge and that's why people are focusing on it so we'll have to see what becomes from this i don't think him finally apologizing look he could have done it right out of the gate and while i do think a lot of this would have blown over that's not the point the point is that he felt strongly enough about what was in that documentary, assuming he watched it, which a lot of people don't think that he did. Um, I won't speak to that because I don't know that. Uh, like that is the real issue. And I think that's why people are just so frustrated. And that's why they're going to troll every single apology that he gives or everything he says. And you know what? That's fine because 
one, it didn't happen right away. It took way too long to get here. And so that's why the critiques of him, of the Nets, of the league to a huge extent, uh, like it, all of it's deserved. Like no one just needs to accept this and move on. And that would go to any other issue. And to that end, speaking of another issue, um, a f- this is, I'm reading off an ESPN report. This is with about the San Antonio Spurs and Josh Primo, a former clinical psychologist for the Spurs filed a lawsuit Thursday morning, alleging that the organization ignored her repeated reports of indecent, indecent exposure by Joshua Primo. According to the lawsuit, Primo exposed himself to Dr. Hillary Coffin a total of nine times. The first incident allegedly occurred during a psychological session with Primo in December 2001 and was reported to Spurs management in January 2002. So a month later about. And then this comes from um, directly from the lawsuit. Rather than act on Dr. Coffin's reports, the Spurs ignored her complaints, hoping the organization could ignore and then cover up Primo's actions. Uh, the Spurs organization was willing to sacrifice Dr. Coffin to keep what they hoped would one day be a star player. Once Primo's conduct entered the public sphere, the Spurs were forced to act and release Primo. The Spurs' recent actions with regard to Primo are too little, too late. The Spurs' public statement about Primo's departure is a complete farce. The Spurs' conduct sends a strong message that they, like other sports organizations, are willing to tolerate abhorrent conduct on the part of athletes and sacrifice loyal employees so long as the athlete is successful on the court. Uh, Primo then denied this. Uh, and in in the denial, uh, his lawyer claims that th- the Spurs psychologist is playing to ugly stereotypes and racially charged fears for her own financial benefit, and calling it an act. And he they, he called it an act of betrayal against his his client. Um, that is that is a pretty. I mean, just as like serious as these allegations are, like that's a pretty severe rebuke just to make. And that continued in an act of betrayal against her young client, Dr. Cawthon, who Cawthon, who is 40 years old, falsely claims Josh Primo exposed himself to her during the course of her numerous therapy sessions. Uh, Dr. Cawthon's allegations are either a complete fabrication, a gross embellishment, or utter, fa- utter fantasy. Josh Primo never intentionally exposed himself to her or anyone else, was not even aware that his private parts were visible outside of his workout shorts. Uh, ca- playing the war- wardrobe malfunction card here is certainly a choice. Um, and the... The lawyer also said what makes the allegations even less credible is that Dr. Cawthon never informed her patient of the perpetrated exposure. Uh, Dr. Cawthon was Mr. Primo's mental health ex- health support provider and confidant, a therapist who Mr. Primo trusted. She's much older than Mr. Primo with many years of experience as a sports psychologist. It is baffling why she not bother to tell her patient that his private parts were vis- visible underneath his shorts. Um, Tony Busby, the... Uh, Dr. Cawthon's attorney said he intends to file a criminal complaint with multiple counts of indecent exposure against Primo. Um, I look, we obviously still don't know the whole story here, but these allegations are serious. We need to believe women. I don't care how much older they are in comparison to men. I don't care what color um, of the skin uh, is it that that man is. And like, th- like we have to believe this. And the fact that the Spurs had to release him. So she's concocted, this fully, but there's enough evidence for the Spurs or like behind this claim to release him rather than just suspend him, let's say. Um, and I do think that's telltale. And look, people were spraining their shoulder, dislocating it, patting the Spurs on the back um, for you know, actually waving Primo after picking up his third year option rather than trying to trade him or just suspend him because it shows that they were taking this seriously. Um, these allegations like what we know now doesn't seem like they took it seriously. They knew for a long time, they didn't renew Dr. Cawthon's contract after telling her she wouldn't have been needed at, at summer league. Um, 
more details on this, I'm sure, will come out. We'll have to watch how it unfolds. But neither the, I mean, Primo certainly, but the organization comes off here looking terribly because I, I just want to know what changed then. If this played a role in Dr. Cawthon's contract not being renewed, but then you have the grounds or the suspicion or the evidence to then release Josh Primo, I this is a shitty situation, and my heart goes out to just all the female staffers in the NBA at this point because this is just more evidence that uh, – or like the the franchise that you're working for is not going to take you seriously if you bring up these um, these serious issues. And it 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 happened in nine times. It happened enough that this is just like a pattern. And having her continue to see him, I just this is just it's a it's a terribly depressing situation. And um, there I I don't know how I don't know how. The Spurs still seem to almost be flying under the radar here. They do, they do deny it that uh, they think that the way that this was framed, the statement come out, statement came out from Marcy Buford, thinks that it's it's misleading. But these are serious allegations, and you know the Spurs saying they disagree with the accuracy of the facts, details, and timeline presented on Thursday. You know they can't say specifics. They said they want to share more information. We will. They want to allow the legal process to play out. Yada yada yada. Um, I don't believe for a minute that they're committed to upholding the highest standards uh, like R.C. Buford says, because the way this situation was handled, this could play out as sort of a farce. Let, let's say, and I won't even entertain it. Believe women. That is my point. But like, so you didn't renew her contract, but you also released Joshua Primo while this was floating around in the background for quite some time. Like, what is it that you were like doing properly here? I guess is, I guess is my point. And so I'm sure this is not the last that we've heard on the matter, but there there's definitely been some clarification in terms of what the allegations against Josh Primo are. And the message coming from his camp, quite frankly, has been inconsistent because they think the details weren't going to get out when they released his initial statement of that. He is working on his mental health and dealing with past trauma. And then the way that the Spurs framed it, like, like what, what was anyone expecting here from the Spurs or Josh Primo? They like the, both those camps handled this absolutely horrifically. And that's not even speaking of the uh, actual act that is uh, alleged to have been done here. Like that, like it's just, it's, it's mind bendingly bad. And it, the next topic is not going to get uh, any, any better. ESPN's Baxter Holmes reported that Hornets restricted free agent Miles Bridges pleaded no contest to a felony domestic violence charge on Thursday in Los Angeles and will face three years of probation and no jail time as part of a deal with prosecutors. Uh, don't you just love our legal system? Um, the the quote from the DA's office in LA County, we believe this resolution was the best avenue to hold Mr. Bridges accountable for his conduct. We also understand through the victim's representatives that the, the victim wanted an expedited resolution of the case. Um, the only person I care about in all this, I don't care what this means for miles bridges, basketball future is uh, their two children. And then his girlfriend who um, that he, you know, committed the act of domestic violence against. And like, you know, we should never need pictures to believe women, but like those pictures were absolutely uh, like harrowing to have seen. And like, I'm just, I'm like this agreement just sort of feels like it's being swept under the rug. I hope it's what the, uh, his then girlfriend, the, the victim in this case actually wanted and feels that there was justice served. I, I don't know if she does, but this just looks like another, like another miss here. I don't, I don't even know what, what did I want from this personally? I don't know. Um, but after seeing this delayed for so many, uh, for so many times, and then seeing that two dismissed counts were charges of child abuse under circumstances or conditions likely to cause great bodily injury or death. That's depressing as shit. 
as well. Um, the children were present for the uh, alleged assault. And like, I guess that the, the, um, the charges didn't state what else the child abuse accounts would stem from. So I can't make any other inferences there. Uh, also as part of this bridges, will be required to complete 52 weeks of domestic violence counseling and 52 weeks of parenting classes, serve 100 hours of community service and undergo weekly narcotics testing with marijuana allowed only if there is a valid doctor's prescription. He cannot own any guns, ammunition, or any weapons. He also will have to pay a restitution fine of $300 with a restitution hearing scheduled for January 13th and a domestic violence fine of $500 and obey the terms of a 10-year protective order staying 100 yards away from and having no contact with the woman. Bridges and the woman maintain custody over their two children and any visitation or exchange of children must be done peacefully and through a neutral third party. Uh, Bridges attorney did not comment on this. It was only the district attorney's office comment that I read before. Um, I, I hope their children are okay. I, I hope his ex-girlfriend at this point, like the mother of his children is, is just okay. Um, well, I don't, I don't care what this means for his, his NBA future, but he got like, I don't know what I was asking for here. or What anyone was asking for, if you want to go, so like there should be jail time for this. I fine. Like, I'm not going to argue with that. It just seems like he got off in, incredibly easy. And so I hope the, the children are, and this is look. this is just all disappointing news. And it's hard to, to wrap your head around and to actually put that. No, I'm not going to say put a bow on this. Like to actually, close this up. I know a lot of what we focused on this podcast the past week has been off the court stuff. It's related to the NBA. We cover the NBA. I think it's important to talk about it, even if these discussions aren't perfect and flawed and I fucked up with them and at any single juncture. And I'm not, you know, looking for the approval of others or a pat on the back for doing it. I'm not looking to promote content. I would just as soon as other things that would be more happy to talk about. And it's hard, you know, it does, it infringes upon your joy of the game of basketball, which I think that we, all love and it's not woe is us but like this shit matters and to just you know you want to say oh it's a problem that the nba trade seemed more hypothetical the hypothetical seems more important than what's actually going on that's a fine argument that you could totally talk about i'm really i actually don't care as much about that like if people want to look forward or think about the hypothetical that's fine to me the more detrimental coverage is just like the the lowbrow topics that you might be talking about or trying to paint players as villains because of what they're doing on the court that's actually detrimental coverage I don't want to talk about this stuff either. I also, part of me just doesn't want to be incorrect or offend anyone by talking about it. But again, I think it needs to be talked about. And so that's where, that's where we are with all of this and the basketball items I actually wanted to get to. Let's start with James Harden's injury. Um, that's going to cost him a month. Uh, Woj reported that he has a right foot tendon sprain. So he's going to miss the next month. Uh, he suffered it, I'm assuming, during that loss to the um, uh, Washington Wizards on, was that Wednesday night? I saw the second half of that, and it was just like a little bit depressing. Um, this is, look, we don't know the status of Joel Embiid as I record this, who has missed the past couple games. This is going to be a test for the Sixers. What what I thought was interesting is Brian Toporek, who's been on this podcast a bunch, works at Bleach Report with me, and then also writes for Forbes. He sort of framed this as the Philadelphia 76ers will get an opportunity to um, self for, for self-exploration specifically to where maybe they can figure out a different way of running their team, um, especially as we project forward to the playoffs, assuming that they're going to get there. Um, and it's also just a test because if you have Justin Bede and Maxi. Uh, you're going against opponents. Their next seven, this Toporek wrote this, are currently above 500 um, or at 500 or above. So that time is not great, but 
and we're talking about someone who leads the team in assists and it's just so important how the offense has been driving. Philly's offense has largely been really good, even without Joel Embiid. Um, we all know the problems about the transition defense that has looked, um, it looked better in a couple games, but it's been, it's just been pretty bad when you look at the numbers surrounding it. And there's still just so many misses um, per game on that front. Uh, what I do, I am interested to see is just, all right, we finally get solo Tyrese Maxey time and not, I'm not talking about Tyrese Maxey playing independent of Harden, uh, because the Sixers do prefer to tether his minutes to Joel Embiid's, and then they're going to play Harden with Tobias Harris. Um, the minutes when Maxi and Embiid have played together without Harden this year have been a disaster. The Sixers have a net rating of minus 21.3, an offensive rating in the 27th percentile, and they're allowing 130.3 points per 100 possessions. That would be the zeroth percentile of defensive efficiency for anyone who cares. Um, however, I do think Maxi has the juice to lead his own offense. I don't know if you like, yeah, there will be defensive concerns. If you're just going to play him with a, a front court that has um, George Yang and, and Montrez Harrell. But like, if you start to get, okay, well, can we sneak Shade Milton and Daniel house in there? And now we're going to actually see him play with PJ Tucker at the five, since Philly has leaned into that without Embiid. I think you could get to points where you're um, better equipped defensively, but on the season and the sample size is not huge. I want to make that clear, but the Sixers have a 131 offensive rating when Maxi plays without both Harden and Embiid. They are a plus 5.2 points per 100 possessions. The issue is that means they have a 125.9 offensive uh, defensive rating, which would be in the first percentile. Um, that's not good. Again, a lot of those minutes, like I said, have come when your front court is Yang and Harold because Doc Rivers still runs like per Doc. I guess can we say predominantly heavy bench units when there's like two starters on the court? It's a lot of, it's a lot of what, when you're not dealing with him beating hard and it's a lot of one starter minutes. And so does putting Tobias Harris in there really help you all that much? Um, I don't know, but like maybe you can steal some more minutes with Matisse Seibel here because they're going to have to be heavy bench units when you don't have Harden um, because he's out. And then when Embiid is back, you're staggering those minutes. I think the structure that you want to see is probably, Milton, Daniel House, PJ Tucker, Maxi, and then I don't I don't care. Like if you need to go with George Niang there or to like Tobias Harris, but now we're just basically naming what the starting lineup should be. So, but my point is if you do well during this stretch to keep your head above water, where it's not even just the starting lineup is killer, um, because Embiid will eventually be in that, but it's Maxi during his solo stretches are able to run an actual offense. Uh, it does open up options to where okay, well maybe we change the way that we're running this team. And to inject some pace in here, rather than tie Tyrese Maxey's minutes to Joel Embiid, we let him go alone and play with a variable cadence. Right now, Philly is 28th in average possession time on offense. 28th. Um, they are dead last in the average possession time after their opponent makes a shot. You can inject more pace into this team with Tyrese Maxey in, in that situation, but the overarching situation as well. They're 26th in transition frequency. That changes or should change when you have Tyrese Maxey. And then if he's playing minutes with De'Anthony Melton, like that's your back court, just absolutely forget about it. Those guys will get out and run. Being able to explore that element, I think, could help the Sixers in the long run. And this is less critical, but something to keep an eye on. Like you get more information about what Tyrese Maxey is just capable of here is Kenny sort of run these units on his own. His, his, you know, his playmaking numbers have been repressed this season um, because James Harden is there, but he's scoring. His scoring numbers are absolutely bonkers. 55% on twos, 47% on threes, um, 48% on threes, by the way, outside of garbage time per cleaning. That's like, this dude is just absolutely annihilatory right now. I do think he's probably slipped on defense a tad 
um, which is, um, you know, he wasn't a world beating defender in the, in the first place, but that might be something to monitor. His straight line drives are incredible. He looks like a, a human blur, but can he also maybe slow things down, run, pick and roll. If there's enough spacing, um, break down set defenses where he might have to operate at, you know, there might have to be some hesitation. He has to change the speed of his dribbles. That will all be fun things to monitor. I'm not calling this a blessing in disguise, but it is, I think as Taporek said, um, it's an opportunity for um, self-discovery with the Sixers. And they will have to be a team to watch because they became trendy title picks. And I even had them second or third in the East when we did our predictions and they have underachieved thus far for sure. Um, so I'm going to be watching them very closely with, out Harden because their their ceiling hinged upon maybe Maxi a lot more than people realize and now it definitely is contingent upon him just sort of blossoming in a different role. Uh, let's also see though if he plays well. Like is Doc just going to revert back to his usual substitution patterns? Uh, hopefully not. Uh, but I'm 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 intrigued to see what the Sixers look like now where Maxi is going to get to run the show even when Joel Embiid is there, but more so those lineups without Embiid. Um, I just want to see what they look like when Maxi is on his own and also kind of how they fought and fiddle with them if they're Philly, because the rotation pattern has to change now since you're elevating someone else um, from the bench to the starting starting five. And also, look, this is just a pitiful stretch for Philly now. You know, you look at um, where they are in the, the Eastern Conference standings. They're they're fighting to just hover around 500 at the moment. The defense has been so disappointing. Um, they're lucky that they're within striking distance of, of everybody still like they're, they're only four games back of the undefeated bucks. Like that's how early we are into the season at the moment, but like your margin for error, uh, your margin for error, excuse me, isn't great or particularly huge. So like you, this is like this month is, is mission critical because I, I think there's going to be a lot of separation when we're looking at teams, one of which I'm about to talk about where they might be sort of mentoring, uh, entering like some make or break points. Um, but right now, like, okay, you know, you don't maybe have to worry about the nets this season, but like the Hornets are going to get LaMelo back at some point. And they've been a little bit frisky so far this season. I think the heat will get better. I'm really not sure. I mean, they've won two in a row, um, two quality wins that game against the Kings, which is absolutely frazzled. But like, so if they get better, you're the Celtics. I think are going to get better defensively. When you look at them, the Hawks have been good. The Raptors have been good. The Cavs and bucks are, are dominating. Um, it was fully expected Philly would avoid playing territory is my point. And so if there's separation that occurs, the Celtics, the Hawks, the Raptors, the Cavs, and the Bucks all just look like teams at this moment. They are one through five. They're going to stay in the thick of things. I don't really know about the Bulls. Um, they've had like some really up and down games where it feels like they're terrible, but they're able to, to cobble together um, victories. And I've been very impressed with what I've seen from Io DeSumo this year. They've, we've seen some really nice things from Patrick Williams defensively when he's been um allowed to operate and just sort of like, okay, like we're not trying to give you this specific assignment capacity. Uh, so like, this gets really interesting because one of, I mean, if we're going by my logic at this point, and I'm not sure that I picked the Hawks to finish in the top six, there's probably a team that I put in the play in here. Cause I had the Sixers in, maybe that was my top six. I can't, I could go look, but I, I did I put the heat in the play in, but it looks like right now, one of the heater, the Sixers is going to be in the play in, which is just sort of a wild thing to think about and so this month for the Sixers is both huge and telltale in so many different ways not just of where they might end up with the regular season but like of of who they are and how far they're actually capable of going if they're able to diversify um, the way that they play and then open up different sorts of lineup packages for when they are hopefully at full strength let's get to two more things um let's do look there's no need to mince words following the New York Knicks' no good, very bad, sorry excuse for a basketball game loss to the Atlanta Hawks on Wednesday night. It's time to fire. 
Tibbs. I don't say this lightly. Jokes are jokes, and who doesn't love a snarky-ass meme? But I genuinely don't like campaigning for people to lose their jobs, not even when those people are earning millions of dollars, not even when dispensability is the nature of this business. This is likewise not an attempt to be edgy or incendiary after just seven games or to evoke Knicks for Clicks outrage in the comment section. Frankly, this shouldn't be considered an edgy or incendiary or even the faintest bit controversial take. It's instead a completely logical response to what we've watched both this season and last and a little bit during Tom Thibodeau's uh, coach of the year campaign. And not only is it logical, but right now, unless something dramatically changes, it's necessary. Falling to the Hawks on Wednesday, it's not everything, but it is the latest evidence amid a mind-melting amount of proof that the status quo isn't working. New York led by as many as 23. They ended up losing by 13. It was quite literally a collapse of historical proportions. Per Tim Bontemps, who was citing Stats Williams, the 23-point lead the Knicks blew against the Hawks is tied for the team's third largest blown lead in a loss over the last 30 seasons. Over that span, the Knicks have led by 23 or more points and lost in five games. Three of those have come in the calendar year 2022. So this is an issue that dates, like, predates just this season. I'm not basing anything I'm saying off of just 2022, 2023 alone. Imploding like that, coming off two days rest, is so egregious, I'm almost impressed. To what extent you blame Tibbs for this loss and all the others will vary. He doesn't play the games, but he is supposed to manage them, adapt to them, evolve over the course of them. He hasn't, and it's clear that he won't. Tibbs is failing these Knicks, incompletely built as they are, and he needs to go. To be absolutely sure, his defining misstep is not an inability to transform this team into a contender. Even with Jalen Brunson, New York isn't constructed to sniff the top of the East. Stubbornness and all that branches out from it is Tibbs' downfall. He implicitly packages inexhaustible flexibility and a lack of innovation as continuity. That shtick is getting old. New York's misadventure against Atlanta was basically a masterclass in all things Tibbs. Human shot of adrenaline, Obi Toppin didn't play enough when it mattered, like usual, because Tibbs hates deviating from the norm, even though he said he was trying to deviate from the norm. Uh, Fred Katz tweeted out, Thibodeau said, of Mitch- said Mitchell Robinson wasn't hurt. The reason he played 18 minutes against the Hawks was that was basically a coach's decision. We were searching. How a search for something, anything productive didn't lead to more meaningful minutes for Toppin is beyond comprehension. Robinson wasn't playing. Isaiah Hartenstein, a bright spot this season, wasn't impacting the game nearly as much in the second half and continues to wear an invisibility cloak on the defensive glass. Is Tibbs that married to watching Julius Randle decision-make his way to disaster? He could, of course, always play Randall and Toppin together. He won't because he never does. Yanking Randall for Toppin, or in this case specifically, continuing to roll with Toppin over Randall is easier in concept than practice. Randall is paid like a franchise cornerstone. But after an encouraging start to the season in which he was playing within the larger offensive ecosystem, he's now reverting. Almost two-thirds of Randall's baskets were coming off assists through the Knicks' first three games. That share has essentially flipped in the opposite direction over the past four. And his total time of possession aligns with the increasing number of touches to nowhere you're currently watching. In this span, he is shooting 13.6% on jumpers and 0% on 11 three-point attempts. 0 from 11 from downtown. 0 for 11 from downtown. Reining in Randall's minutes is far from egregious. 
it's not even a matter of pulling him from the starting five. How about you just don't sub him in for Toppin during the second corner when you're rolling? This isn't just about Randall either. Tibbs also has a penchant for too much Evan Fournier, and that killed the Knicks on Wednesday night. Hat tip at IQ for three on Twitter. When Fournier exited the game in the first quarter, the Knicks were up 18 to 16. He returned in the second quarter. The Knicks had a 53 to 36 lead. So they're up by 17 at that point. When he exited the game again in the third quarter, the Hawks were up by eight. That's a 25 point swing. And it's a larger symptom of what we've seen happen time and again. This also coincides with the larger longstanding loyalty Tibbs has to his starters. New York's opening five, Fournier, Randall, Robinson, R.J. Barrett, and Brunson, ranks fifth among all lineups in total minutes. They're also getting outscored by 9.6 points per 100 possession with below-average offensive and defensive ratings while downing just 32.3% of their triples. Starting fives might be more ceremonial than ever. It's not who starts, but who finishes has become a cliche. But who Tibbs starts informs who will play the most, and equally, if not more, troubling it also cements who spent an overwhelming amount of time together. Staggering Randall and Barrett specifically makes too much sense, especially when the two of them are combined 15 of 67 from deep, which for the folks at home with the calculator, that's 22.4%. They don't complement one another very well and never have. They're ball-dominant scorers, both currently ensconced in, to put it kindly, shooting ruts. Naturally, then, more than 91% of R.J. Barrett's possessions played this season have come alongside Randall. That is an inexplicably drastic uptick compared to last season in which 74.4% of Barrett's possessions played came with Randall. Maybe it won't hold, but that's a troubling trend right now to say the least. Maybe changing the starting five is too nuclear for Tibbs' taste. That's ridiculous. Let's make that clear. Let's also roll with it. At least consider using the players within it differently, staggering them differently. And speaking of player usage... Tibbs decided to bring Derrick Rose off the bench against the Hawks first rather than his recently preferred choice of Emmanuel quickly. When asked about it by uh, Chris from Knicks Film School, he didn't even really have an answer. He said, no, we wanted to get a look at it, thought it would be beneficial. Okay, cool. Dope. Don't worry, though. Tibbs apparently has nice but weird things to say about IQ behind the scenes. Um, Kevin on Twitter, at Knickerbacker, um, relayed an anecdote where Mike Breen said, Tibbs constantly says IQ is underrated on defense. If if you can let me know when you find the person responsible for obscuring IQ's underrated play on defense, that'd be great. I'm dying to know who it might be. Who's responsible for playing Emmanuel quickly. Now, in the interest of fairness, this is a somewhat outmoded jab. Quickly has not been woefully underused relative to seasons past. He played almost 30 minutes on Wednesday, and his shot selection is often maddening enough to make you understand any limited runway. Still, This is now year three of the Tom Thibodeau experience in New York. This means it's also year three of the Knicks' reserves routinely outplaying their starters. Yeah, Tibbs won coach of the year in 2020-2021, but who among us still isn't traumatized by every single minute played by Alfred Payton? Present-day complaints and frustrations aren't new. Just so we're clear, this isn't all on Tibbs. Maybe he will change up the starting five. He clearly isn't going the quickly route, so Quentin Grimes is the natural candidate to supplant Fournier. And Grimes only just made his season debut Wednesday after missing the start of the year with a left foot injury. Semi-related note, or very related note, Tibbs throwing Grimes in for a four-minute-and-change stint during garbage time Wednesday is a top-tier troll job, even if he didn't mean it as one. Bravo to him. Perhaps Tibbs even starts playing Randall less and topping more or experimenting with the two of them together. It won't happen, and we know better than the hope for it. 
But hey, you never know. More to the point, it isn't clear whether a reformed version of Tibbs would actually matter. New York is not going to be a juggernaut just because he futzes and fiddles with his rotations. Much like the Knicks don't have the personnel to bomb away from deep and cold turkey their junkie twos, they don't necessarily have the talent to be materially better than they are now. Skill set overlap won't dissipate with Tibbs' departure, and the talent in tow won't suddenly become higher end. Indeed, there is real depth and optionality to this squad, and Tibbs isn't capitalizing on either nearly enough, but he isn't floundering entirely by his own hand. The front office, led by team president Leon Rose, built a mediocre roster, and what we're watching now is probably akin to slightly underachieving. How far is a team that counts Brunson as its best player supposed to go? Realistically, how far? There could be a massive disconnect here between front office and coach. Guess what? That again is on the front office. They had all offseason to remove Fournier and Randall from Tibbs' tool belt. So, yeah, the folks upstairs deserve just as much criticism as the man they've tasked with leading their on-court product. If not Tibbs, then who? Isn't a hard question to answer right now. But Quinn Snyder could walk through that door tomorrow, and it wouldn't change everything. New York would still have the same semi-confusing blend of non-stars and mystery box or yet-to-be-fully-tapped prospects coalescing into a hazy, if indiscernible, long-term direction. Yet, Leon Rose and friends aren't going to fire themselves. And switching up head coaches, even if it's just to pivot toward associate head coach Johnny Bryant, is much easier than finding a taker for the contracts of Randall and Fournier and just flat-out tearing down the roster and admitting to larger-scale failures. In the end, Tibbs may be collateral damage born from convenience. That doesn't excuse his role in where the Knicks are now, teetering on the edge of aimlessness, gradually inducing their fans to bookmark Tankathon and Victor Wembanyama highlights. He is complicit in hurting their direction, someone who remains unwilling or incapable of coloring outside self-imposed narrow lines. And if these Knicks aren't, in fact, a crisis of optimization, then they're facing a harsher reality Tibbs is even less qualified to reconcile. The prioritization of youth and development for a roster that, as it turns out, maybe isn't built to be good after all. That's like that's where I'm at with the Tibbs stuff. And you can say that it's not all on him, so why should he get fired and what would it change? I can't really push back against that. I just think the lack of flexibility with these rotations, he's been, the best way to frame it is he's been given an imperfect hand and he's played that imperfect hand imperfectly. There are better ways to play this, and so that's what it would change. The final thing I wanted to get to is just an observation, uh, and it's a team that we haven't really talked about since our look-aheads, uh, or he's on a team that's not we haven't talked about too much since our look-aheads, but the Washington Wizards, I don't know if you know how we. I still feel about the Wizards long-term. They're playing 500 basketball um, that puts them in seventh in the East. Right now, you look at just the vitals on that team, and it's like, all right, you know, cool. They're getting, they're like a little bit frisky. They're getting out in transition a little bit more than I thought they were going to. Um, I've been happy with, uh, you know, some moments from like Kyle Kuzma a lot this season. Bradley Beal, I think, has looked really good in terms of how he's moving for long stretches. And yet, the offense and the defense are both 20th in points scored per possession. It's been pretty unspectacular. Kristaps Porzingis, on the other hand, has been. Pretty fucking good, if not great. 21 points per game, 8.5 rebounds, 2.3 assists, 1.3 blocks, hitting 60.8% of his twos, 36.6% of his threes. I I went back and I was watching 
a lot of his two-point attempts, and you're like, oh, he's shooting 52-plus percent for mid-range. That won't hold. Most of them are short mid-rangers, where he's shooting, like, I think it's like 55% or something. Um, it, just something something ridiculous. He's at, yeah, just something ridiculous there. And it's like, that's not too far away from the basket for it to be unsustainable. I think he's moving really well. And just even sort of looking on defense. Um, yeah, there's the raw. The raw rim protection numbers absolutely matter. Uh, opponents are shooting 54.8% against him at the rim among every player in the league to contest at least five attempts per game at the rim. That ranks in the top 10. It's sandwiched between Rudy Gobert and Yusuf Nurkic, and he's ahead of guys like Kinkapel and Anthony Davis. That's a fine number, um, but what I've also noticed about him on defense is he's held up really well away from the baskets. And one, also, his blocks have come in all different sort of forms. Like, yeah, he's at the basket showing his verticality, but he's also hit these, you know, run. he's also swatted these running shots as he's going off to the side. Um, He's needed to... Uh, block shots on his second jump when an opponent pump fakes or he just leaves his feet. And so he's been able to really do a good job protecting the rim in those scenarios. And he's just blocked like a few jumpers and stuff outside of the restricted area with his length. And he's held up really well to me on the perimeter. Like, yeah, you're going to play him predominantly in like drop type coverage here. But um, when he's like had to make a true switch, I go back to that play on Jason Tatum where he's able to stay in front of him and put himself in a position to, um, kind of block Jason Tatum from the side going to the basket. He's moving really well, and you can see it. This will get into his offense. You can just see it in his sort of um, like change of direction on his footwork. Like it seems like he's okay stopping on a whim. He's okay sort of spinning. He has some east to west agility that I feel like we really haven't seen from him in quite some time. This is probably the healthiest he's been in like a half decade. Is that is it even longer than that? And that's a, you know, you can't put all your eggs in that basket because Kristaps Porzingis um, gets injured consistently and always seems banged up. But if you're, if you're Washington, this is a really encouraging sign. I, you know, he's only shooting um, like 34.7% on catch and shoot threes. It's sub 35%, whatever the number is. You'd like to see that come up, but if he's going to give you, you know, the work in the post that he has done this far, he's averaging 1.11 points. 1.11 points, excuse me, per post-up possession right now. That is absurd. He's shooting 60% on post-ups. He's also drawing a shooting foul on 18% of his post-ups. And so if you look at the players who have you who have finished at least 15 post-ups this season and are averaging more than a point per possession and getting to the line as often as Porzingis, here's the entire list. You have Nikola Jokic, you have Luka Doncic, and that's the end of the list. It's just those two. And so I know post-ups are a very outmoded form of offense, but look, Kristaps Porzingis, 1.11 points per possession. That's almost as much as the Wizards are averaging as an offense overall. They're at about 1.13 points per possession. So that does sort of speak to how inefficient post-ups can become. Kristaps has had some issues um, keeping control of the ball in the post, but I do think he's done a good job of using his size advantage. Um, he's done a fantastic job of hitting his, his turnaround jumpers to this point. He is shooting... 66.7% on all turnarounds this year. That includes hook shots, bank shots, um, the fadeaways in there. That is like a massively important clip, and it gives you an offensive hub. I think that you can reasonably hope. Yeah, you look, if he's going to shoot 36.6% from three, that's fine. Um, he's been about 35% above the break. That is fine, too. Uh, but most like a, a huge chunk of his threes are going to become assisted. So you'd like to see him maybe like hit a little bit 
more of them. Uh, he has hit 50% of his pull-up threes. Uh, I don't know how many he's actually attempted. I would imagine it's probably like under 15 at this point. He's three of six on off the dribble three. So that's very just like, oh, whatever here. But he has been a, a variable offensive weapon for them. And if you have him as an outlet in the post, I do think that's really important because when you do look at this Wizards team, they're not, they, they have more creation here. But I think we've seen, some like yeah you've seen some highs from will barton at points and you know you have bradley beal um but like monte morris has looked overmatched and kyle kuzma just doesn't feel like he's best suited in that that type of role so you might have even less secondary creation than you think um denny obvious role just still feels like it's all over the place i remain incredibly high on him long term but he just feels like sort of formless on offense at this point still that would be my best way to classify him the other thing um and i don't want to say the final thing but the, one of the other things i've been impressed with um with regards to to Kristaps is th like the assist numbers aren't really going to show it, but he does feel like a smarter passer. And I, there was a play I can't was I don't remember if it was the Sixers game or their their previous game, but like he's directing Bradley Beal before Kristaps even has the ball. He's directing where Bradley Beal should go away from the ball. He gets the entry pass at the nail, and he just hits a cutting Bradley Beal for um, an easy layup on the strong side of the basket. Like that's just a different level of IQ and decision making that we haven't seen from him before. We've also seen it on defense now, um, where it feels like he's really directing. Again, this is his first full season with the Wizards. Missed all this time with the Mavericks, but he's like really calling out traffic and coverages on defense when you go and watch how the Wizards are playing. I'm not here to say that the results have been, you know, absolutely incredible again the wizards the wizards rank uh 20th in points scored per possession and 20th in points allowed per possession uh that being said i do think Kristaps has had a material impact on how successful the offense is is with him on the court uh, they have a 119.3 offensive rating when he plays and they're outscoring opponents by 5.5 points per 100 possessions overall when he's on the court um, this is a difference maker opponents are shooting a lot worse at the rim even though they're getting to him more often, I think, look, a lot of that to me might, and sure, people have watched the Wizards way more than I have, but I, a lot of that to me when you look at it is just like, it feels like guys believe they can beat him because he's not going to stay in like firmly in front of them the entire time. Like he's going to give you that steps so that he can break up the play from behind or force you into these impossibly angled shots that are closer to the basket. And I like, I would argue that's why opponents are shooting um, so much more at the rim when he's on the court. It could also just have to do with like, you know, some of the defensive lineups that he has participated in are, are, are pretty iffy. Uh, so like that could have a lot to do with it as well, but I've been absolutely uh, taken aback by how well he's played this season. And if he can stay healthy, he he will probably be in the all-star discussion. Um, he's been among the best bigs in the league this year. I think, look, if we're talking about true centers that are better than him right now, maybe haven't necessarily performed better to date, but would be better than him. There's bam, uh, there's Rudy Gobert, there's Nicole Jokic, there's Joel Embiid. I probably still put Aiton ahead of him, but like the center, well, after that is all right. Like who are we talk like is do you have still Domas Sabonis ahead of him? Maybe do that's fine. Is is it Jared Allen there and Evan Mobley is not really like using being used as a center just yet? I don't think that you could say Clint Capella is there. RW three is not playing. Uh, Vooch, no, at this moment I wouldn't. Uh, like the Knicks with Robinson or Hardenstein. Nope. Uh, Miles Turner, like just the body of work that Kristaps has shown on offense just being more available than him this year. I don't think you could go there either. Definitely not Jalen Duran or Isaiah Stewart in Detroit. Uh, not Claxton in Brooklyn. 
the Hornets with maybe Nick Richards is better than Chris. Let's give him that. Uh, the magic, uh, Wendell Carter Jr. is kind of interesting. Like that would be one I'd have to dig into. But like basically, my point is like, could you even say, oh, Nurkic has been better than him so far, or Stephen Adams, or Jakob Pertl? Like these are names. I'm just saying that you might have put in front of him last year, um, at least before his trade to the Wizards. Uh, Jonas Alanchunas, you put him ahead of Kristaps. I probably wouldn't give you too much pushback. Uh, nobody in Oklahoma City. No, I mean Poku is the center, obviously better than Kristaps. But we're talking about someone who's probably pretty firmly a top ten center. Right now, because like if you throw Anthony Davis in there as a center, okay, sure. Um, let's give some leeway with Domas Sabonis. Like that's that's a semi big deal. Like being a top ten center is is hard. It's you know you're better than two thirds of the league. You're in the top top thirty three percent, and at this point, he's probably been better than just like ten. He's probably closer to like seven, eight, nine. I don't think he's in the top five. If you want to go super bold and say, okay, there's Gobert, Embiid, Bam. And Jokic, and those are the only bigs, only centers you want to say are better than Kristaps. I think that overlooks. Look, Anthony Davis has been a center this year and fantastic defensively, even while playing with a back injury. So he has to be at worst sixth. And I still think like an Aiton is going to deserve a hat tip there. We're going to have, at least for me, like, yeah, we're going to have a conversation about Jonas Valanciunas, or we're going to have a conversation about Nurkic, even. I would probably put Kristaps ahead of Nurkic, though. So there are just like, you know, other candidates here, and certainly Domas Sabonis. Uh, but Kristaps has been fantastic this season. If it holds, I think that bodes well for the Wizards to maybe break through and be like, hey, we're not the 10th best team in the East. Like, we're going to be in at least striking distance of one of the top six playoff spots, which I think was their aim when they set out to build this team. I don't think they were, they haven't tricked themselves into thinking they're contenders. I do think they're a team to watch on the trade market this year because if they're in a position where they can make the playoffs, like as a top six team, you know their picks are going to start to convey to the Knicks when looking at their protection. So you are rolling the dice a little bit, but not as much as going in lines. Uh, but the moral of the story was Kristaps has been fantastic, and that's absolutely gargantuan for the Wizards the, the rest of the season. That'll do it for me. If you enjoyed this, please hit that like button on YouTube. Subscribe across all the mediums, the podcast players, uh, and on YouTube. Cross-subscribe. I want people downloading every episode as a podcast and also hitting that subscribe button on YouTube. Recommend us. Retweet our promos. Tell friends, family members, randos, strangers on the street, enemies, coworkers people you don't have no idea on social media um maybe not if they pay for blue check marks on twitter i just feel like that's a little bit cringy we don't need any of those people around these parts um but yeah appreciate any shout outs and appreciate you all for listening until next time i leave you the shout out to one the only the indelible frank nilakina